And your water has been, the seal's been cracked, but I did not sip on it, I promise. Good morning. It's, uh, it's always an honor and privilege to be back with you guys. My wife and I always enjoy our trips down to Indiana. But uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, dear Lord, we just come before you today. We just want to thank you so much just for the privilege of being able to gather together with saints from all over the country and even other countries today. It is just a great blessing that we can worship you with other people who love you. We, as we just enter into this lesson today, I just pray that we can see how your word is sufficient to care for the souls of men. And we can learn from what our fathers in the past did right and what they did wrong. And in all things, we just pray that you are glorified. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So in 1970, the church experienced a modern reformation. The publication of J. Adams' book, Competent Counsel, has been compared to Martin Luther nailing the 95 Thesis to Wittenberg's door. Just like Luther, Adams called the church back to the Bible. He took the battle cry of the Reformation, Sola Scriptura, and applied it to counseling. His insistence on the sufficiency of Scripture and his unique personality were the catalysts that triggered what has been called the modern biblical counseling movement. While the biblical counseling movement began with the publication of his book, the concept was not new. Adams did not invent the idea that the Bible was sufficient to minister to God's people. God has always empowered his shepherds to use his word to care for the souls of his sheep. Just like he has always empower, empowered the average Christian to use his word to care for the souls of their fellow brothers and sisters. But unfortunately, there have been periods of time where the people swayed from using the scriptures in counseling, but God has always called his people back to his word. So this morning, we're going to do a brief survey of the biblical counseling movement to see how the Bible has been used to counsel, counsel God's people in the past. And we're going to explore how God has used his sinful men to call the church back to the sufficiency of scripture. But due to time constraints, we're going to start our journey in the period of the Reformation. We're also going to see what we can learn from the history of the movement so we do not repeat the mistakes of our fathers. So what is biblical counseling? It is simply discipleship. It is where Christians help fellow Christians find comfort in Christ and a solution to their problems. In many cases, it means lovingly confronting a brother who is in sin and walking with them as they fight against any life-dominating sin in their life. In other cases, it involves coming alongside another Christian who is suffering. In other words, it is the way that Christians can obey the command given in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Until recently, biblical counseling has been referred to as neuthetic counseling. The word neuthetic is based upon the Greek word neothesis and neotheto. According to J. Adams, the word comes from the Greek New Testament. It has within three elements, concern, confrontation, and change. 
Euthetic counseling is counseling that involves face-to-face confrontation by one person to another out of loving concern for him in order to bring about the changes in their life that God desires. It is radically different than Christian counseling. Biblical counseling believes in the sufficiency of Scripture for the counseling task. It holds that the Scriptures are the ultimate authority in counseling, that all authentic change can only be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is strongly based upon 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, and 1 Peter 1, 20-21. And at its core, Christian counseling believes the Bible needs assistance of secular psychology in order to care for the souls of men. They may not phrase it that way, but it's a clear implication of their counseling methodology. Biblical counseling is Christ-centered. When it comes to counseling, it strongly believes that any counseling approach that does not have Jesus Christ as its center cannot be called Christian. Therefore, biblical counselors strongly reject integrating any amount of psychopsychology into counseling. While biblical counselors may utilize other Christian resources such as books, confessions, catechisms, videos, and songs, those resources will always be subservient to Scripture. Biblical counseling recognizes that every problem a person experiences is due to sin in some way. It may be due to their own sin, they may be a victim of someone else's sin, or their problem may be the result of living in a world that is tainted by sin. So we have disease and we have death. Biblical counseling also church is church-based, where both the counselor and the counselee are under the authority of a local church. And it recognizes that all Christians are counselors. In a formal setting, the counselor is a pastor or someone who the church has called to serve in that capacity. In this environment, loving church discipline can be a powerful tool in the counseling process. Informally, all Christians are counselors. And this type of counseling is done on a daily basis in the hallway of a church, through phone calls, or over a cup of coffee. And finally, biblical counseling is a ministry of the Word of God and is one of the ordinary means of grace. And since biblical counseling is an ordinary means of grace, it cannot be neglected. Mark Mann has said, the ministry of God's Word takes place primarily in the church in a variety of different ways, from the pulpit, in the classroom, in the counseling office, and in Christian homes. With the divine mandate to save men from the lost state and transform them to the likeness of Christ, the church is entrusted with this great responsibility by God's power to his glory. Now that we know what biblical counseling is, we can start our historical analysis starting at the Reformation. God used the Reformation to call his church back to the Bible as the source of authority. It was also the catalyst that he put the Bible back into the hands of the common man. And because of the Reformation, the common man was finally able to personally dive into the Word of God and apply it to their lives and the lives of their family. We started to see God's people being able to minister the Word to each other without having to go to a priest. And it was during this time period that a man made major contributions to biblical counseling, but it's not who you might think it is. The man was Martin Luther. Unfortunately, Luther is known for his harsh rebukes 
instead of his tender shepherding. There's even websites we can do a Martin Luther installed generator. We can put his name in and it brings up different insults from some of his writings. But he is not known for how much he loved his sheep and cared for them. According to Bob Kelman, while we see Luther as a theologian reformer, he envisioned himself as a pastor counselor. In this calling, Luther engaged in the pulpit ministry of the word preaching and the personal ministry of the word counseling. When you read Luther's works, you can see he was a master of taking what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and using it to minister to the struggling Christian. His counseling approach was grace-filled and constantly pointed his people to Christ instead of themselves. When Luther read the precious words of Romans, Romans 1.17, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, for the righteous man shall live by faith. It provided great comfort to his troubled soul and opened his eyes to the gospel. Just like it did for Luther, the word of God brought relief to the people of God who were laboring under the harsh system of the Roman Catholic Church. After the Reformation, we move into what I like to call the golden age of counseling, the Puritans. The Puritans were Protestant ministers in the 16th and 17th century, and they sought to purify the church from ungodly practices and influences. Mark Deckard has said they were masters at understanding the nature of human beings and applying scripture in practical ways to help people with their struggles and their problems. The Puritans are often referred to as physicians of the soul, because as Decker rightly noted, they were sound theologically, but they did not just stop at propounding theological truth or doctrine. Rather, they made those doctrines functional in the day-to-day struggles of the people they taught. The Puritans were well known for practicing what they preached. They invested themselves in the lives of the people under their care and used the Bible to minister to them. They also taught their congregation the importance of family worship and how to rightly divide the word of God in their own lives. This led to many average Christians devoting themselves to teaching their families the word of God and family worship. And as a result, during the Puritan era, young children were more fluent and able to apply the Bible to their daily struggles than the average Christian is today. The Puritans also wrote numerous books and tracts that gave instruction and comfort to Christians who were going through various trials. For example, Lifting Up the Downcast by William Bridge dealt with depression. Jeremiah Burroughs addressed discontentment in the rare joy of Christian contentment. And Thomas Brooks discussed assurance of salvation in heaven on earth. But the most well-known counsel book from the Puritan era is The Christian Directory by Richard Baxter. It addressed numerous problems the Christian face and can, can be described as a counseling manual. While Baxter did have some major theological concerns, you cannot deny his contribution to the biblical counseling movement. Now, if we jump ahead to the 19th century, Christians were blessed with a great abundance of Christian books by men like Charles Spurgeon that can be very useful in the counseling setting. However, one work stood out among all of those. Ichabod Spencer was a congregational pastor in a church that once was pastored by Jonathan Edwards. He later moved to New York and was known as the Bunyan of Brooklyn. Over the course of his ministry, Spencer visited the homes of every one of his church members on a yearly basis and had countless conversations with lost and weary souls. And he would record many of these conversations in what he would call sketches. 
At the origins of, of some of his friends, he published those sketches in two volumes, known as, and he called it, a pastor's sketches. It is considered to be the last major work in the field of biblical counseling that was published for a very significant period of time. Then we enter what is known as the dark years. The personal ministry of the word of God fell into an extended period of neglect. While the seeds of this neglect was planted in the 1700s, and various movements throughout the years added to the problem that led people away from the word of God. But due to time constraints, we're only addressed three of them. Heath Lambert gave a full treatment of these differences and that led the people away from the word of God in the book, The Biblical Counseling Movement After Adams. But the first reason for the neglect of the person ministry of the word of God was revivalism. While revivalism and biblical counseling both proclaim Christ, they emphasize different things. Revivalism focused on attracting large crowds, public preaching, and in some cases, superficial decisions for Christ. Revivalists were often in town for a few days and focused on conversion. Counseling, on the other hand, is focused on ministering to individuals and is committed to the long process of helping a Christian conquer sin. The focus in counseling is on sanctification instead of conversion. The second reason for the neglect of the personal ministry of the word was the fundamentalist modernist controversy. The church's attention and focus was consumed by defending the core truths of the faith against liberalism. While Christians were in a war with the truth, a war for the truth, liberal heretics flanked them and slowly eroded the church's confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. And the third reason for the neglect of the personal ministry of the word was the psycho- psychological revolution. Lambert has rightly noted that since its inception, psychologists like Sigmund Freud set out to remove counseling from ministerial contexts and place it in a secular one. He even opened up his first counseling office on Easter Sunday to make a point. The psychologists were very successful beyond what anyone could ever have imagined. Their theories were quickly accepted as science, and many pastors quickly handed over their responsibilities to secular therapists. Pastors started to practice what is called refer and defer, where they would counsel the sheep for small problems, but refer them to so-called experts for the big problems. And the church was in crisis. A vast majority of churches willingly handed over the personal care of the souls of of the people under their care to secular psychologists and Christian counselors who integrated secular theories that were developed by men who hated God into their counseling. Many churches who strongly held to the inerrancy, infallibility of the scriptures, were denying its sufficiency in practice. And sadly, many still do. What the church needed was a man to stand up and call it back to the Bible. A man who'd be able to stand on the truth of the scriptures as being authoritative and sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. A man who'd be able to withstand the ruthless attacks that would come from the secular world as well as fellow Christians. And that man was Jay Adams. He was a broken and fallible man, just like me and you, but God used him in, in mighty ways. He was born in 1929 to a non-religious family. After his conversion, he felt immediate, immediate call to the ministry and enrolled in the Reformed Episcopal Seminary. He served in various different roles until he was ordained by a Presbyterian Presbyterian Church in 1952. 
He served as a pastor of several different congregations. But his time in the pastorate was not an easy one. It was filled with church conflicts, church splits, and a whole bunch of strife within his denomination. But during that time, he furthered his education and finally accepted a position at Westminster in 1963. While there, he taught classes on public speaking, preaching, and pastoral theology. But by the province of God, Adams was eventually assigned to teach the pastoral theology course, which contained a unit on counseling. And this led to the birth of the modern counseling movement. As a professor at Westminster, Adams was unable to find any materials for the counseling unit that were solidly Christian. Over the next few years, he struggled to develop a Christian approach that was faithful to both the Word of God and his Reformed theology. But at the same time, he really wasn't sure to what degree pastors should counsel. But oddly enough, God used a secular psychologist known as O. Hobart Maurer to open his eyes and help him rediscover a truly biblical model of counseling. He attended a lecture of an anti-Fordian psychologist, Maurer, and he was mesmerized by Maurer's radically different views. Even though he wasn't a Christian, Maurer believed that people were morally responsible for their actions and called their behavior sin. He also widely attacked all the popular psychological theories at that time that took responsibility away from the person for sin. At Maurer's suggestion, Adams participated in several week-long internships at various state mental hospitals. During these internships, Adams witnessed Maurer confront sinful behavior of the patients and call them to change their behavior. Maurer even encourages patients to find a way to pay restitution to the people they're hurt. His approach was effective, but Adams recognizes that his patients were only experiencing a superficial change. His experience with Maurer is just what Adams needed to dig back into the Bible and rediscover an approach to counseling that would become the modern biblical counseling movement. In 1966, Adams was promoted to the full-time assistant professional at Westminster and was assigned to teach all the classes on pastoral theology. Within two years, his unit of counseling became an entire course. And during that time period, he partnered with a man named Gardner McBride to start a counseling center at McBride's church. They called the counseling center the Christian Counseling Education Center, or CCEC, and they focused on training pastors to counsel. Within two years, they rebranded themselves as the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, or CCEF. And CCEF is still one of the most recognized and active biblical counseling organizations. And they expanded the ministry beyond McBride's church. And it was during this time period that Adams turned his curriculum into the book, Competent Counsel. It's been credited as the official beginning of the modern biblical counseling movement. And it became a runaway bestseller within the Christian market. In the 1970s alone, it sold over 250,000 copies. According to David Powelson, the publication of Competent Counsel in 1970 marked the inception of a discernible nuthetic counseling movement and triggered lively controversy in the evangelical community. The people who read Competent Counsel seemed to react in two ways. Christian psychologists and integrated Christian counselors saw it as a dangerous movement that was causing Christians to turn to so-called untrained pastors instead of the professionals. 
Other people read it and ran back to the truth that the scripture was authoritative and used it to help people with their problems. It also inspired pastors to return to the private ministry of the word. In the early 1970s, Adams strongly influenced Bill Good, a Baptist pastor from Indiana, and a physician named Bob Smith. Together, they established the Faith Baptist Counseling Ministry that was the, under the oversight of Good's Church in Lafayette, Indiana. Over the next 20 years, they trained more than 1,000 pastors and missionaries and conducted seminars throughout the United States. In 1973, John Broger, who was the highest-ranking civilian employee in the, in the armed forces, was also highly influenced by Adams. And he started to host counseling seminars for military chaplains. He created the Self-Confrontation Manual and related training courses. Over 15 years, he distributed over 100,000 copies of the manual. While he expanded his views beyond Adams, he never compromised on the fundamental truths of biblical counseling. While Adams focused on training pastors, Broker focused on training the average Christian appeal to counsel each other. He can be rightly credited with helping spread Adams' message beyond the pastor's office. In 1976, the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors, or NANC, became the accrediting arm of the biblical counseling movement under CCEF. After two years of existence, they broke away from CCEF and became its own entity. But initially, the idea of certification did not take off. NANC did not even reach 100 certified members until the early 1980s. In 2013, NANC changed its name to the Association or Certified Biblical Counselors, or ACBC. But despite the blessing seeing a rapid explosive growth in the early years, the biblical counseling movement soon hit what appeared to be a dead end, and the integrated Christian counseling movement really took off. Many well-meaning Christians tried to have what they thought was the best of both worlds by mixing secular psychology into biblical counseling. This unbiblical approach was widely accepted, and many churches once again started to doubt that their Bibles were sufficient for the counseling task. According to Cameron Fraser, the movement stagnated in the 80s as evangelical psychotherapeutic counterinsurgency responded and claimed the position of authority among evangelicals. This can be seen in the surging popularity of integrated Christian counseling clinics such as New Life Treatment Centers and best-selling authors such as Steve Ardenbord, Larry Crabb, Gary Collins. The future seemed bleak for the biblical counseling movement, and the church as a whole seemed to have quickly abandoned the sufficient of Scripture to help God's people in exchange for the wisdom of man. However, God was still at work, and he used a lawsuit to rekindle the flame of the biblical counseling movement at a time when he appeared to have been extinguished. In 1979, a member of Grace Community Church in California tragically committed suicide. The young man had a history of previous suicide attempts and had a handful of counseling and discipleship sessions with a pastor from the church. At the same time, he was been evaluated and treated by healthcare professionals. The man's family filed a lawsuit against Grace Community Church, Pastor John MacArthur, and three other pastors at the church for clergy malpractice negligence, and outrageous conduct in failing to prevent a suicide. The court battle lasted almost a decade. The church and the pastors were cleared of any wrongdoing, but God used this horrible and tragic situation for good. 
Romans 8.28 states, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. In this case, God used the lawsuit that was meant to cripple and destroy a faithful church to cause people back to the sufficiency of Scripture. The lawsuit awoke a sleeping giant. And by the time the lawsuit was concluded, Master's Seminary became one of the loudest supporters of the biblical counseling. Master's Seminary abolished its psychology department and started to focus solely on biblical counseling. They brought in a Reformed Baptist named Wayne Mack to help with the transition. Grace Community Church also became intensely committed to biblical counseling, and many of their pastors became certified through NANC. But this lawsuit did not just wake up Grace Community Church and Master Seminary. It rejuvenated interest and commitment that many churches and organizations had to biblical counseling. But since its inception, the modern biblical counseling movement had to withstand attacks from the outside, but also had to withstand attacks from the inside. Martin and Deidre Bobgin were involved in the early stages of the biblical counseling movement in the late 60s and early 70s. Over the years, they became concerned of the influence of secular psychology that snuck into the biblical counseling movement. As evidence, they cited language such as counselee or counselor or the use of intake forms. But their main concern was that counseling was problem-centered. They stated, What some who counsel may not realize is that it is entirely unnecessary to use a manual or, or even discuss the problem that led the person to seek counsel. What the Bogans basically taught was, if someone came into their office for counseling and they were struggling with, say, lying, you don't even have to talk about the specific lying. You just kept repeating, reminding them of the gospel and that they're a new creation in Christ. So they didn't see any need to walk with a person to have them mortify specific sins. By the time it was 1994, they outwardly rejected the entire movement. While they're relatively unknown to most Christians, they have been promoting both Reformed Baptist circles by good faithful brothers, and oddly enough, in very staunchly anti-Calvinistic circles by guys like David Hunt and T.A. McMahon. Their influence can be seen in pastors who only counsel through preaching and neglect, neglect the private, private ministry of the word. Many, many times, and people who came to me for counseling came to me because their pastor would not meet with them to walk with them. Because, well, just, you come on Sunday, right? It was basically the, is the mentality. Can also be seen in pastors whose methodology of counseling is simply reminding their sheep of the gospel and how their new creation in Christ instead of helping them actively mortify sins. But what is the state of the modern biblical counseling movement? It's actually very good. It has seen an explosion in growth over the past few years, beyond what its founders ever hoped it would be. ACBC is now the most prestigious and well-respected certified agency within the movement. It has over 2,000 certified members, over 70 certified training centers, and they're still receiving record numbers of applications to start the process. The Institute of Neuthetic Studies, which was founded to promote the teachings of Adams, just partnered with Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary to offer biblical counseling as an accredited degree, and have started to republish all of James Adams' books that were out of print. Multiple seminaries, such as the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Masters, offer advanced degrees in biblical counseling. And other seminaries have started 
to change the direction away from an integrated approach to a biblical counseling approach. For example, the Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte recently hired another Reformed Baptist, Jim Neuheiser, to help transition their program into a, a more biblical counseling approach. And the biblical counseling movement has all seen wider acceptance within Reformed Baptist circles. The Reformed Baptist Seminary has partnered with CCEF to offer a biblical counseling program where they can get a degree from RB or Reformed Baptist Seminary and at the same time get certified by ACBC. And Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary is in the very beginning stages of possibly developing a biblical counseling track for their Master's of Theological Studies degree. And not only is the say the biblical counseling movement good, it has seen many advances since the late 60s and early 70s. Adams laid a firm foundation for the movement in a very hostile and barren environment. But many faithful counselors and pastors built on the, upon that foundation. We're just going to look at three of them. The first was a new emphasis on seeing counselees as people who are suffering. Adams focused on recognizing sinful habit patterns and confronting them and then replacing them with godly behaviors and the power of the Holy Spirit. In his approach, a counselor did not spend a lot of time emphasizing with a counselee. He did write books about showing love and compassionate counselees, but it was never a major focus of his work. Current leaders such as Lambert and Neuheiser advocate a method that encourages counselors to see counselees as someone who is suffering, and then addressing that suffering before you address their sin. By doing so, they hope to earn a counselee's trust through a more empathetic approach before offering the rebuke and correction. The advancement of addressing suffering before sin is an improvement to some degree, but it can be an overcorrection if not properly practiced. Unfortunately, some counselors have taken to an extreme and almost give a counselee an excuse for their sin. The second advance in the biblical counseling movement has been a more expanded view on the counselee's motivation when it comes to that sinful behavior. Adam strongly believed that sin is the primary reason people behave the way they do. Therefore, his counseling approach is based upon changing sinful habit patterns. He taught that change is a process of putting off sinful behavior and putting on godly behavior, based upon Ephesians chapter 4. But mostly due to the influence of guys like David Powson, the biblical counseling movement eventually moved away from Adam's approach towards one that is more in common with the Puritans. This new approach believes that a person is either going to have God on the throne of his life or something else. And this approach attempts to identify and dethrone those idols a person has built up in their hearts. The return to this more puritanical approach is a much-needed advancement. However, Adams' emphasis on the put-off, put-on process should not be discarded since it is an essential part of the ch how people change. It can and should be incorporated into the idols of the heart view advocated by the later leaders in the movement. The third advancement in the biblical counseling movement is an approach that's more familial and less authoritarian. Adams focused strongly on the shepherd-sheep relationship in counseling and believed that all counseling should be very formal in an office, op, you know, op ends of the desk, and where late, newer leaders say, you know, even though I'm your pastor, we can meet and sit on the, you know, opposite, you know, on the couch. You could be on a couch in my living room, and I can counsel you in that fashion. 
Counselor's author- or Adam's authoritarian approach tends to create some barriers to developing relationships in counseling. Despite Adam's stress and the importance of providing loving and compassionate care to counselees, his approach has led to the same accusation that it was unloving and cruel. As the movement developed, new leaders took a different approach that is still faithful to the model and stressing the importance of authority, however, it's a more familial tone. They believe that sometimes the most effective counseling is done when his approach as a counselor remembers that he is also sin saved by grace, a sinner saved by grace. They take the approach that counseling can often be done in a relaxed setting. And according to Heath Lambert, the counselor does not possess the authority of God when speaking from, I'm sorry, the counselor does possess the authority of God when speaking from God's word. When, however, the counselor speaks the word of God to counselee, he or she is speaking to a brother or sister in Christ. The counselor is still speaking authoritatively, but authority has a different tone when done in the context of a brother-sister relationship than in a general corporal relationship. This new approach is a much-needed advancement, but the biblical counsel movement must be careful it does not throw out the baby with the bathwater. There is, still much need, there is still a much-needed place for formalized counseling that is author, authoritarian in, in nature, but that approach should not automatically be the default approach. As with all church history, we can learn a great deal from the biblical counseling movement over the past few years. And we're going to briefly look at five practical things we can learn. First is the Bible is sufficient for counseling. We do not need to rely on ungodly philosophies to care for the souls of men. God's word has always been sufficient for the task, and it always will be. It's not just a collection of ancient books that have deep spiritual meanings. It is a collection of ancient books that are the very word of God. They contain the words of life. The scriptures are sufficient to counsel someone who feels like life is just too hard, and that they are in the middle of a dark night of the soul. The scriptures are sufficient to counsel someone who is crippled by anxiety. The scriptures are sufficient to counsel someone enslaved to their lusts and does not think they have the strength to shut off their computer. The scriptures are sufficient to counsel someone who struggles with the guilt and shame of their sins and does not have the assurance of their salvation. And the scriptures are sufficient to counsel you with whatever you are going through. Second, A Christian who is well-versed in the Bible is competent to counsel. The power to change life is only found in the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God, not by the number of degrees a counselor has. Therefore, a Christian does not need an advanced degree in psychology in order to help people. All they need is an open Bible and a good working knowledge of Scripture. That means that all Christians can and should counsel each other. In fact, you're already doing it whenever you use biblical principles to provide comfort to a friend or a family member with a problem. It also means that the church's elders are equipped and responsible to care for the souls of their sheep. If they did not feel equipped to the task, they should seek help from other Christians who hold to the same view that the scriptures are sufficient. Then third, where the pulpit goes, the pew goes. The pastor is the driving force behind how the Christians in the pew are going to view the Bible. If the pastor denies its sufficiency, then so will his congregation. The biblical counseling movement teaches pastors that they must practice what they preach and teach about the Bible. They cannot preach a powerful Bible that can change lives from the pulpit, but deny its power and sufficiency in the counseling room. 
If they do so, they will send their sheep straight into the arms of men whose counseling approach is more based on the word of man than the word of God. And fourth, a little compromise will lead to a big compromise. Pastors do not wake up one day and totally reject the sufficiency of Scripture. It started by thinking the Bible just needed a little bit of help here and there. And eventually it led to a total denial that the Bible is able to help a Christian deal with so-called modern problems. My friends, you need to immediately repent if you see even the slightest bit of compromise in your ministry or your life when it comes to the inerrancy, infallibility, or sufficiency of the Scripture. Throw yourself in the merciful arms of our God and dive into the Scriptures. Pray that God will help you see the truth of the Scriptures and how they are sufficient to anything that pertains to life and godliness. And God, and fifth, God will raise up the right man at the right time. If you're like me, there have been times you look around the state of the church and wonder what, what's going to happen when our current leaders die. You fear that no one can lead the church against the liberalism and false teachings that are creeping in. You fear that there's going to be no one who's going to be able to stand up and boldly proclaim the truth like R.C. Sproul did. You fear that no one will be able to take place of godly leaders like John MacArthur and Paul Washer. But history teaches us that we should not fear the future. When it is needed, God will raise up the right man at the right time. He has done it throughout history of the church, and he will do it again if we need it. But we must always remember that, men, that, just, that the men he used in the past and any men that he will raise up in the future are just sinful men like you and me. They're just vessels that God has chosen to use for his glory to bless and protect his people. And as we close, I pray that we'll embrace the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we just come before you today, and we just want to thank you for this time we had together. I just pray that you just help us at times we're struggling and we just that we can reach out to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, our pastors and elders, just for help and support. And we just pray that we will always embrace that your word is sufficient to help us with those problems. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, Brother Chris, 